to the second installment of our 2022 podcast series, Bridging the Gaps, produced by FASTA and the European Health Futures Forum. I'm Shauna Conline, a Folgeroiv Galair. And I'm Caroline White. This month, we spoke with Chris Smage. Chris is based in Somerset in the UK and worked as an academic anthropologist for some time, but then changed focus to the practice and politics of agroecology, and he now co-works a smallholder farm. He's written several books, including most recently, A Small Farm Future, making the case for a society built around local economies, self-provisioning, agricultural diversity and a shared earth. He also writes on the blog, Small Farm Future. We'll go over now to our interview with Chris. Thank you very much for agreeing to be interviewed by us. It's really great to have you on our podcast. So my first question for you is, you trained as a social scientist and now you're helping to run a small holding in southwest England. Um, could you say a few words right. about your earlier career and the sorts of things that persuaded you to take this path of becoming a smallholder? Sure. Well, well, I suppose originally I studied anthropology and I sort of got interested in or learnt through doing that about world systems theory and learning about peasant agriculture and the idea of, of how small farmers, peasants globally was part of the global world system, but also kind of a little bit outside it and resisting it in various ways. And so I was kind of interested in that and made a few baby steps towards researching that. I mean, the funny thing about that was that it was kind of an intellectual interest. I didn't actually know anything about actually farming or, or, or gardening back then. And then as you know as careers often do i ended up kind of sliding off into doing a bunch of other things but then it was sort of in the in the 1990s when climate change started getting talked about seriously and issues about energy as well and kind of got interested in in that again and started to think that the global food system was like a real significant point you know which a lot of these things came together and and that you know we needed to be living in different ways and producing food in different ways so yeah my wife and I possibly also had a bit of a kind of early onset midlife crisis and felt a bit you know stuck in the office so basically got interested in the idea of of local small-scale food production and I guess the the social science hasn't been particularly useful in in terms of um, being able to tell the difference between a crop and a weed or fix a tractor or whatever Um, but I suppose it's helped me kind of um, put the sort of local into those kind of bigger political economic contexts and that's kind of what I do in the book that I wrote A Small Farm Future because I think we can debate different food and farming systems all day long and, and you know those debates are important but the problem is not figuring out, you know, what to do when you've got a bit of land, how to grow food. The problems are basically political and economic, you know, so it's almost like I've been drawn back slightly against my will into that kind of socioeconomic framework, because that's where the real barriers are. Chris, if I could come in this theme of small and local as opposed to large and global, and I think you mentioned Main Street versus Wall Street, it seems to be a big theme in your thinking. Could you just say a few words about that and why your concept of small and local is so important? Yeah, I mean, there's a number of ways, I suppose, of getting into that. I mean, I think one, you know, one thing is that energy and capital realities of the modern world push us towards large scale and they push us towards, it's a complex sort of issue, but they push us towards simplification. You know, you have to do the same thing. You know, we've got this very sort of monocrop type of global agriculture where something like 65% of global cropland is devoted to just 10 crops that are all very sort of mechanizable, processable crops. 
And that's driven by, by the energy realities of cheap, abundant fossil fuel, which is leading us into all sorts of problems. And it's also part of these larger systems that generate a lot of capital, which in some ways is a good thing, but also it tends to sort of break down local relationships, local communities and kind of connections to local ecologies. And so I suppose the small thing, you know, I mean, it's not about saying that every farm below a certain acreage is great and every farm above a certain acreage is a terrible monstrosity. It's really about sort of trying to enrich the connections with local possibility and also be aware of, you know, the limitations upon possibility that are generated by the local ecology. So, you know, it's it's those sorts of ideas. And in some ways, it's about kind of knowing when to stop. You know, you can have too much of a good thing. And part of it is kind of about furnishing ourselves, our household, our communities and then knowing when to stop not trying to generate endless amounts of capital by sort of investment structures that are chasing around the world looking for an extra return which usually has a negative consequence either on people somewhere in the world or on the environment but generating what we can to generating a good life locally and then stopping at that point knowing when enough is enough and I think you can do that at kind of small local scales you know you get sort of feedback if you do something that has a negative impact on your farm on your community you see um, and you can you can adjust and you and you can be much more subtle in the in the way that you're interacting with people and with the landscape locally so it's you know it's, it's that sort of constellation of ideas yeah, that seems to tie in with your discussions about agroecology on your blog. Right. And, um, you have a comment that one of the things you've written is that my view is that if the existing food system fully internalized its carbon, soil, water, health and pollution costs, we'd probably be questioning the affordability of anything other than agroecological production models. So I'm guessing that when you talk about all the things you're just talking about, the kind of model that you're pursuing in your farming, it's, it's an agroecological model and presumably. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, everyone is kind of locked into the sort of existing economic system dynamics in one way or another. But yeah, I suppose it's our own farming system. I mean, I, I tend not to sort of present my own farming and my own farm as kind of exemplary of what everyone should be doing. But, uh, you know, essentially, we have a sort of relatively low input, low output model and you know there's bigger questions there you know what we do is is kind of small-scale horticulture so we basically grow veg for our local community and a lot of wealthy countries in Europe the USA and so on they because of the cheapness of energy and the and the high cost of labor you know they tend to export those labor intensive or as Helena Norberg Hodge prefers to call it job rich sectors of the economy to poorer countries where labor is cheaper or labor standards are poorer so we've got into this kind of mismatched global food economy where the richer countries produce capital intensive but labour light commodity crops and the poorer countries are producing the sort of more labour intensive crops. So, you know, at one level, just being a gardener, being involved in horticulture kind of pushes you in that more agroecological direction. And, you know, I argue in the book that we need to emphasise horticulture more than agriculture, gardens more than giant field cropping. Not that there's never a place for bigger scale field cropping, but we've sort of got the balance wrong. So yeah, it's about thinking as carefully as you can about inputs, thinking about resilience, you know, what would happen if global energy prices spike as they indeed are, you know, thinking about all the inputs, thinking about where you get fertility from and so on. And you kind of have to be realistic about that within the 
confines of the existing economy. But that's where the thing you quoted back at me, it's uh, it's quite a kind of economic way of thinking, which I generally try and avoid. But the point is that the kind of existing economy emphasises the economic bottom line. It's like sort of net present value, income over expenditure. But there's all these things. So much of what we do causes greenhouse gas emissions, which is storing up enormous costs for the future or manifesting now and you know looking after our soils not polluting our water courses looking after our our own individual or collective health you know which arguably the global food system doesn't do very well so if you look at the sort of the cost of production of of a kind of small operation producing veg like mine compared to a big grain producer say you know our, my system doesn't look particularly great but if you try and figure in all of those costs health climate, clean water, preserving the soil, preserving local community and so on. The checkout price is really not telling you very much about the real cost of the food. So it's kind of trying to get at those sorts of ideas. Yet, if you were to say, Chris, that what people are paying in supermarkets, and although many people are complaining now that the price of food, basic food stuff, looks like very significant increases into the future. But what you get as a local producer doing, as you're saying, how are you being paid for all these, for the sequestration of carbon or the, the soil that you're improving and the water you're not destroying and so on? Because presumably you're not getting huge margins from the local community, are you? No, we're not. And I mean, obviously here in Britain, we've just sort of going through the whole Brexit thing and the, the, the kind of reconfiguration of the farm subsidy regimen and, you know, some attempt, I suppose, to start thinking about those kind of things. But again, it's all this financial micromanagement from the centre, you know, sort of trying to pay farmers to do good things and sort of not pay them to do bad things. And really we need to, that's, I don't think is the way we should be doing it. It needs to be much more of a sort of bottom up, you know, choosing good livelihoods locally. But no, I mean, it's kind of a better, it is a little bit better now, the environment, the economic environment for small growers than it was. But no, it's not, you know, if, if you were to choose the sort of best paying financial return on land it wouldn't be doing the kind of small horticulture that we do or in fact it wouldn't be doing farming at all you know and that's one of the sort of the slight misconceptions people have is that are oh, you know small scale farms are an, are an economic dead end i mean the reality is that any type of food production globally is an economic dead end and you know even big scale farmers are struggling and sort of like getting bigger and bigger and trying to sort of get economies of scale in order to improve their profits. And it's this kind of global race to the bottom. So really, nobody is getting incentivized to look after the land, look after the environment, look after their communities well. I don't think sort of governments sort of tweaking the subsidy regimen is is the answer to doing that. You know, we need a much deeper rethink about the way that we live our lives. Just to change the topic a little bit, and maybe it's going a little bit from the local, but you you seem to have a particular interest as well. Maybe it goes back to your anthropological days about nations and the story of nations and the randomness of history, I think you've written about, and how traditions are invented and communities imagined. And particularly in an Irish context, uh, where certainly, probably on the whole island, we have lots of difficulties with, if you like, the stories and the traditions that we've invented for ourselves. 
And I think you actually say that passions and boundaries and traditions emerge, and they aren't the only ones that are possible. In the context of FASTA is involved in all island initiatives, where we're endeavoring to look at different traditions and cultures and to imagine new futures, what insights would you have for the stories and the randomness of the history of an island like Ireland? Oh, gosh, that is a big question. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you're referring to a very recent blog post of mine, I think. I mean, I talk about it a little bit in my book as well. And I suppose it's, you know, mostly I the sort of audience I engage with seems to be a US sort of North American one. And, you know, the kind of story of the nation in in every country around the world is a little bit different. And there's a kind of certainly in a in some contexts in an Irish context would be one there's a kind of anti-colonial story about a forging a nation sort of against a colonial oppressor and then obviously it gets even more complicated in Ireland because there's numerous different versions of that story and, and, and different communities in a sense that little bit of writing emerged in a context where people were talking about globalism versus localism and were defining the nation, you know, let's say the the USA or say Britain, defining it as a kind of localism standing against a globalism. And, you know, that's been one of the sort of Brexit narratives. And so my argument has been, well, um, in a sense, people have invented this story of the nation, the real kind of passion, the real, the thing that really animates us in our day to day lives isn't this sort of abstract notion of the nation. It's our families, the people, our friends, the people that we know and love, the places that we go, you know, where we take the dog for the walk or, you know, where we see our food being grown. And nationalism kind of uses that as its sort of raw material and, and sort of says, you know, look, these, these things that you love, this is the nation. But almost always, in my view, there's a kind of slightly nefarious purpose to that, which is to kind of legitimise, you know, centralised political power against the interests of that localism, you know, what we were just talking about in terms of a kind of sustainable local community. Yeah, so, so that bit of writing you're referring to, I was basically saying... Well, you know, hold on, uh, let's be a little bit cautious about this story of the nation. And then obviously, you know, in Irish history, obviously there's, you know, religious sectarianism, sort of different views of history, different orientations to, to Britain, to Europe, the wider world. And you can kind of weave these things in any number of ways. And I, I suppose, you know, my arguments are against any kind of singular narrative, you know, very often, uh, yeah, in, in all sorts of ways, really, people are sort of invested in saying, you know, you know, my story is the right one, you know, don't listen to that story you know, don't listen to those people. This is the, the historical truth and um, or the this is the truth of our community. And I, I suppose I'm. it's really difficult to thread this needle because on the one hand, I'm arguing for, for localism, for local stories. But on the other hand, I'm arguing not to sort of make that become its own kind of, you know, oppressive reality that, that kind of turns everything into a singularity when within any community you know even with any one person there are numerous different stories kind of struggling to get out so yeah it's that kind of thing I I suppose I'm trying to get at yeah you've written a lot about different levels of managing resources and the household level and which is pretty pervasive around the world and then Mm -hmm. also uh, of course you have big business and then you also have states and you know really big 
large yeah. powerful institutions then then there's also the whole commons movement or the phenomena of commons around the world some of which have been going for a very long time which are collectively mm. owned or collectively managed resources like lakes or pastures right. or and as you've pointed out there's a lot of very good things about commons but they can also have their limitations and so mm. you've argued for a balance between the more sort of household level management and then also some commons where necessary could you elaborate a little bit on that on why you think that Sure, yeah. I mean, one of the problems with this is we tend to get into these political polarities where if you look at a lot of traditional farm societies, there are certain things that are done at the household or at the family level, certain things that are done more collectively. And we sort of, I think, you know, a lot of people have this perception that we have too much privatisation, too much sort of enclosure, um, too much in the way of private property rights and then the commons kind of becomes articulated as an alternative to that and you know I, I basically endorse that but it kind of gets a bit distorted by the sort of ideological lens where on the left anything if you use the word private to refer to anything it's a kind of you know it's it, it's a real sort of negative vibe and likewise people conservative people hate anything that you know if you talk about collectivities or you know commons it's a sort of scare word for them but if you look at the way that you know traditional farm communities organize themselves you know there's a case for stepping back from that ideology and, and essentially as you said there are certain things that they organize collectively and they tend to be sort of relatively extensive things, kind of low input, low return things, um, or things with uncertain boundaries. So, you know, grazing and, and um, things to do with water, whether it's irrigation or fishing or things like that, you know, they lend themselves to commons. Whereas things that, um, you know, there's a kind of subsidiarity idea, I suppose, you know, one of the problems with commons, if you've, if you've ever been part of a sort of voluntary community organisation or even just a, a marriage or a household, you know, you sort of think of how you have to kind of thrash everything out with, you know, with a small number of people. Now, you imagine do, doing that or with your neighbours, you know, if you imagine doing that with everybody in your village um, and not just the people you like, but also the people you don't get on with, um, you know, and you, you look back in history and look at all these court records of, you know, the sort of the arguments and the infractions of, of go on and commons. So, yeah, essentially, I argue for controversially, perhaps for private property. But the real problem, I mean, any kind of property right is always generated by the community. It's always a right of appropriation that is at some level or another validated by the community. So private property that could be an individual household or family it could be a big sort of intentional community but essentially it's the community saying you know you have the right to appropriate a resource and and get something back from that so you know whereas a commons is something that it doesn't really make sense to organize at that level and you get you know a lot of uh, farm systems are very complex interrelations between the two i mean a lot of dairying systems for example you have an individual family or household will own the cow will own the hay field and make the hay, but they'll be grazed in common, grazed collectively. They'll be milked individually, but cheese will be made collectively. And, you know, you can see how these systems develop over time as sort of clever ways of optimising the system. And, you know, they have all sorts of other functions. But at the root of it, I don't think we should be scared of either private or commons or state level organisation it's just a matter of sort of getting the right balance between them. And the real problem, I think, with private ownership is not private ownership per se, 
but the accumulation of power in private hands it's you know it's the kind of corporate sort of structures that we have today where a very small number of people own so much of the property and you know bill gates is the biggest farm owner in the us james dyson is the biggest farm owner in the uk so my precisely my argument for a small farm future is that it shouldn't be possible for private ownership of land to accrue into the hands of the few you know it's got to be sort of kept open be in the hands of the many and in that situation it's much easier to get good local efficient and effective um regimes of property rights that 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 sort of combine the private the public and the commons sorry that's a lengthy uh, (laughs) lengthy answer but that's kind of the ideas i'm trying to get at it almost leads into what i was going to ask about your vision for the future that links in smallholders an economy based on local on the local but also an agroecological economy as well. So it's a certain type of economy. So could you paint a picture there? You've almost done it, but maybe more concretely, because you're talking a good bit about balance and so on. And in particular, I'd be very interested in what are the barriers or what are the steps to our getting there? What do we need to do to, to bring it about? Yeah, again, good and difficult questions. I mean, it's funny, like being asked to paint a picture, it's always easier to argue against what you don't like than it is to paint a particular picture. And But also one reason of problems of painting a picture is that we have this kind of quite cynical kind of modernist ideology. You know, the moment you start talking about the joys of being on the farm and having fresh milk or, you know, wonderful trees or whatever, it, it kind of sounds like this romantic pastoral sort of image that's completely detached from reality and there's sort of interesting historical writing people like Stephen Stoll or Eugene McCarriger in the US who kind of show the way that that has has been quite functional to the development of a sort of corporate capitalist mindset which which is a kind of romanticism of its own you know there's a romanticism of the big city and of kind of modern progress and technology and so on so and that kind of leaves me slightly struggling to portray an image of the kind of society that that I would like to see without it being seen as this kind of romantic pastoral but you know ultimately property prices in rural areas are high for a reason you know people actually do want to live in the visit the kind of myth of how everyone wants to live in the city nobody wants to work the land it's not actually true people do want to do it they don't want to do it if they're kind of working their fingers to the bone to keep the wolf from the door so the real trick is to try and set up the economy in such a way that that isn't the case and again that points back to stopping the accumulation of wealth stopping landlordism that enables the people that control the land to sort of set the economic terms you know the economic terms have to be within the control of the community and obviously the community is a bit of a problematic term. It has to be enabling everyone, you know, different ethnic groups, sort of women against men and so on. At all of these levels, everybody needs to have a voice. So so I guess my positive vision is to keep distributing the power, keep giving people the ability to generate a livelihood. But I suppose increasingly so many problems we're facing in the world, climate change, energy futures and socioeconomic problems. And generally, we've sort of adopted this model of generating money and hoping in various ways that we can sort of buy our way out or that money will trickle down to the kind of people at the bottom of the heap. And I think we're reaching the end of that kind of illusion 
and we do actually need to generate our livelihoods in a more direct, I would say, agricultural way. You know, livelihood is being able to produce your food, being able to produce vegetables, milk, meat, being able to produce it sustainably. I don't want to shy away from that kind of, you know, rural idyll, that pastoral vision, because it's it's there. It's what a, it's what a lot of people aspire to, but it's hard to organise and it's hard to retain in the face of the tendency to accumulate power and accumulate capital. But ultimately, that goes back to that vision of what I was sort of talking about, local prosperity, access to the means of producing a, you know, a sustainable livelihood with kind of real tangible things, arts and crafts, food and farming, all of these things, rather than the kind of abstractions of the, of the global marketplace, which kind of is a romanticism of its own. I don't know if that really answers your question, but... <laughs> it's kind of tricky, you know, it's, uh, it was, um, what was his name? Frederick Jameson had this famous quote that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. And we, you know, we do need to imagine the end of the global corporate financial system and try and realise that as individuals and within our communities as best we can locally. And, you know, some of those ideas won't work and, and we'll have to throw them out and learn from other people. But I think it's the time where we need to be experimenting with different local economic possibilities. You've written again in your blogs about war and battles and so on. And I thought there was a big parallel between that and, if you like, competition as opposed to cooperation. So this notion that our lives are about helping each other to live better, as opposed to the, the capitalist mantra that the winner takes all, basically, you know, right. um, which is really, I think it's it's almost like a, an assumption that you have in what you've just said. But I don't know if you want to add anything else in on that. Yeah, I mean, I think we've sort of had, I suppose there have been sort of complexities in the sort of global economic order where there was too much competition between nations, which kind of led to, basically led to the world wars. So we have this post-war Bretton Woods settlement, which is like, okay, we'll try not to fight each other. You know, we'll trade with each other instead. But the reality of that is a little bit different to the myth where there is a lot of economic dysfunction and a lot of suffering, which ultimately produces conflict and violence that maybe we don't see in, uh, you know, in Western Europe or in North America, but it's there nonetheless. And it is kind of that winner takes all philosophy, which to some extent has been modified by ordinary people, sort of working class struggles over trade union rights and sort of wages and conditions and so on. But ultimately, I don't think that kind of more traditional left-wing industrially based politics is going to generate the kind of transformations that we need. Um, so yeah, it is about a more local cooperation. It's partly, again, going back to that kind of private versus commons thing, that it's partly about having the kind of skills and the base to generate your own livelihood for yourself, but not in a kind of selfish way of like, you know, keep out everyone else and I'm all right, Jack, you know, it's it's about enabling people to produce their livelihood, but also recognising that ultimately, you know, we're, every person is part of a larger community and we can only realise our goals as human beings within that wider community. And that, I mean, I'm sort of having interesting debates with various people at the moment about that sort of thing, the, the, the kind of tension between individual rights or the rights of certain categories of people versus the rights of the community. I think we've got to get beyond this sort of notion that everyone has the individual right to accumulate as much money or property as possible 
But when you start limiting rights um, at a collective level, it's quite easy for some people's people to get trampled on a bit. So it's about trying to safeguard everybody within the community as well. And I mean, I talk a little bit about the traditions of civic republicanism in that regard, which is sort of, I mean, it's like, you know, very old ideas going right back to classical times that kind of keeps, it keeps getting reinvented essentially in times of trouble when we need to come together to define collective goals, but hopefully to do it not in a way where we're quite exclusive about in and out groups of us and them, you know, it's a more kind of open-minded, open-ended way of sort of saying, well, you know, here we are, we need to figure out, you know, a little bit like the idea of the common, we are this group of people that happens to be here at this particular time, having to figure out how to generate a livelihood, make the most of our lives here. How do we go about doing that in a way that's open to everybody's need? So yeah, it's those sorts of questions that I think we need to be thinking about in a little bit of a different way to the, to, you know, to the way we've been accustomed to in sort of mainstream, modern, capitalist, technocratic sort of centralised politics terms. I love the phrase job rich. I think that's brilliant. I'm going to definitely steal that. <laughs> that. Yeah. <laughs> because it's so, well, it's so yeah. funny. you constantly hear this thing of, oh my God, the energy transition is going to cost so many jobs and uh, mm. we're going to lose jobs here, there and everywhere. And then on the other hand, you hear this, the same folks saying, and then agriculture, it's going to be so, so labor intensive. I mean, you know, oh, it's terrible. <laughs> it's going to be too much work. I mean, yeah, it's a funny one. Like, yeah, like almost every job sector, if you say we're generating more jobs in it, it's like, great whereas if you talk about more jobs in farming um yeah everyone's like there are kind of <laughs> histories of hard agricultural work that we have to be aware of but part of that part of the hard work is kind of servicing the the needs of corporate landowners so um yeah, yeah so but it is it is funny the way that we talk about work and people worry about the physical work involved in farming and yet go to the gym or do like Ironman marathons or whatever it is they do. You know? So there are some real, um, there are some peculiarities about these things. Yeah. It's a similar with sort of art and craft. I think we tend to want an artist who draws a wonderful picture and sells it as compared to the way that craftsperson and artisan, you know, producing beautiful objects that are actually functional. And, and you sort of get that a lot in more traditional farming societies, you know, there's a real pride in doing good craft work, but it's not alienated and abstracted as a commercial commodity. And again, because we're on a very small scale, you know, you get people, if you sort of look down a half a mile row of cabbages or something, it's a bit dispiriting. But in a garden, if, you, if you're just growing a small amount and then you're probably doing some other job later in the day and you're using your body differently throughout the course of the day rather than just sort of stooped over an endless row, you know, it's a little bit different, you know. So Probably yeah. no accident that, you know, it certainly occurred to me when you were talking about the local and the global, that the local it tends to be, it has to be diverse, you know, by definition. Yeah. And diversity, immediately you start talking about resilience mm-hmm. because you're, you, so when you look out and you see a small patch of something, in a way, it's much more appealing to us as humans. It's much more attractive. Um, but it, Yeah, it, absolutely. Yeah, no, it is. And also, I think that, again, it's these different mindsets where if you're operating in this local small farm self-provisioning way, you're sort of always looking at your landscape. How do I furnish my needs in the fullness of all my needs from this landscape? 
Whereas mm. from a commodity crop perspective, you're always asking, what's the cheapest crop that I can produce here and sell it? God knows where else. Right. So you get this real specialization of a limited number of crops as compared to really furnishing your livelihood. And and, you know, people often say, you know, there's downsides. It's like, however hard I try, I'm never going to be able to produce oranges competitively in, you know, where I live in Somerset. But I can produce apples and a whole bunch of other things that are probably pretty varied and more tasty than the kind of stuff you're going to buy in the shop. So it's kind of swings and roundabouts. You know? That was Chris Smage, a smallholder farmer and author of the book A Small Farm Future, making the case for a society built around local economies, self-provisioning, agricultural diversity and a shared earth. Many thanks to Chris for his participation and as usual to Leisha Kelly for her music on the harp. If you enjoyed listening, please spread the word about our series Bridging the Gaps and keep an eye out for our next instalment at the end of March. Slán go foil. Thank you.